Welcome back to Three Right Turns, the podcast of hopes for 415 electoral votes, but what the hell? We'll take 306 or so, am I right? Man, what a week it has been since Election Day in America, huh? What a close election. And by close, of course, what I mean is, once all the votes were counted, it was just about as close as Trump's historic, his landmark, his huge landslide election win that he's been talking about ever since it happened back in 2016 except you know instead of losing the popular vote by some three million votes joe biden's going to win that popular vote by well over five million and it looks like he might even end up with exactly 306 electoral votes just like trump did back in 2016 maybe less maybe more we're still counting the votes the final tabulations won't be finished for another week or two but you know what I think if we're honest, is maybe closer than a lot of us were expecting. Maybe some of us had hoped to win the kind of election that I was dreaming about back in the last three right turns. The one just the the one just before 400 plus electoral votes, 12 million popular vote total, just a schlacking, just general electoral domination up and down the ticket, expanding our lead in the House, taking back the Senate. In fact, you know what? Let's go for 53, 54 senators. Let's make it really hurt. I wanted America to so resoundingly reject Trump in terms of politics and as a cult of personality. I wanted it so bad, and I I don't think we got that. Not exactly. But you know, in the in the week since the election, I've seen all kinds of takes and all kinds of reactions. And while we're still living right here in the moment, I thought maybe we could do a little bit of advanced myth-busting and see if we could come to a common understanding of just what the hell happened during this election before myth becomes legend and therefore accepted as fact. Okay, our first and foremost myth. The 2020 election was fundamentally a disappointing result for liberals and especially progressives and leftists. Well, you know, disappointment implies an expectation. And let's talk about the expectations uh, for this election, because they're all over the map. You know, Trump had a one in 10 chance of winning the election outright. According to 538, that was his odds of winning the Electoral College. And if Trump had won outright, it would have meant that the USA was in a lot worse shape than many of us thought. That Republican policy and propaganda is so popular, so effective, that even a man who is just a terrible example of a human being, just in terms of personal and professional conduct, a man who openly lies and cheats to get ahead, a man who shares a large personal responsibility for the 240,000 Americans that we've lost to COVID. The worst result by far amongst developed nations, this man who spent the entire summer failing to do anything about a pandemic in preference to stoking racial resentments and throwing massive maskless rallies to work his following up into a lather. Not even this guy, not even this guy could bring the Republicans down. Perhaps worse was the expectation and very real fear that if Trump lost, he wasn't going to accept the results of the election, and that democracy in America would be effectively dead, gone, 
Maybe something that we could retake at a future date, perhaps, but gone for us now. And you know what? Trump tried. He called the election result illegitimate. He made the baseless claims of fraud. He filed his bogus lawsuits. He called for his supporters to do something to save him. Don Jr. declared total war. And in a few places, yeah, there's a handful of armed supporters that showed up. Alex Jones's red, sweaty face and megaphone showed up in Arizona. And he screamed for a few hours and then asked for people to follow him on InfoWars and he just fucked off. But then something incredible happened. No one, absolutely no one who mattered listened. The media cut away from his conferences, openly calling them lies. The FBI stood back. The Secret Service moved protection details to start covering Biden as if he was the president-elect because he was. The lawsuits mostly dismissed as non-serious. Have you ever seen a federal judge issue a one-page judgment for a challenge to a presidential election? I have. It was spectacular. Hardcore Trump supporters passed around just thimblefuls of hope, like Justice Alito coming down from the Supreme Court ordering that the election officials in Pennsylvania had to segregate certain types of ballots during their count, keep them separate. But, you know, that decision was something that the Secretary of State for Pennsylvania had already ordered. It was already happening. It wasn't going to change the result, which is that Trump lost. And he's being treated by all official instruments of state as a loser. The resistance to the decision has been spotty. It's been reluctant, low energy. Now, that could change. It doesn't certainly seem like he's giving up anytime soon. But he looks and he feels defeated. And more importantly, his calls for support are going unheeded. So if among the expectations existed the possibility that America itself might double down on Trumpism or that Trump might end democracy itself, I got to say what I'm feeling right now. We're going to have to look at the numbers, check the stats, uh, do some experiments, but it doesn't feel like disappointment. Now, you know, on the other hand, if you were uh, dead set on getting a true blue tsunami, if you wanted that backbreaking 400 plus electoral college advantage, if you wanted to be up four seats in the Senate, if you wanted to win back more state legislatures. Yeah, yeah, it, it it's a little disappointing. I don't know what to say. There's a lot of analysis to do. But one clear story emerging is that in places in this country where COVID is currently ravaging the hardest, the most out of control places with the most sickness and death. Trump's carrying these areas decisively. Isn't that wild? For example, in North Dakota, it's currently at the top of the list for COVID-19 cases and deaths in terms of per capita anyway. Last week, they elected a dead man as a state legislator, Republican David Andel. And this guy died from COVID-19 last month. As a result, the state Republican Party is going to be tasked with appointing a temporary fill-in for the job, and they're going to have to hold a special election. How do you defeat this kind of mentality? How do you understand it? QAnon. We've talked about QAnon briefly before. It's a super conspiracy cult. Their belief is that we're locked in this global war against elite pedophiles at all levels of, of business and politics that traffic children brought into pizza parlors and by shipping them in Home Depot kitchen cabinet fixtures and things. And, and, and only Donald Trump can save us from this horrific fate. 
well, Donald Trump's defeated now. You'd think that'd be the end of Q and QAnon, but but no. There's at least two QAnon candidates that have now won not just their primary races, but races for House seats, not for state legislatures, not for city council of some podunk town, seats on the U.S. House of Representatives. Madison Cawthorn, for example, 25-year-old asshole. He booked a trip to Hitler's summer retreat, the Eagle's Nest, to celebrate his 21st birthday. You know, like any red-blooded American would. The guy says he disavows QAnon, but he loves spreading their theories and their misinformation on social media. He won the 11th Congressional District for North Carolina, and when he was announced as a winner, the acceptance tweet was literally, cry more, libs. Then there's... Marjorie Green, who won Georgia's 6th Congressional District. You might remember her from that one campaign poster that was circulating a while back. It was her posing with an AR-15 next to pictures of AOC and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib saying it's time to go on the offensive, pew, 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 against socialists who want to rip our country apart. Or perhaps you know her from her videos that leaked out uh, by Politico earlier this summer where she expressed racist, anti-Semitic Uh, Islamophobic views. Or maybe you know her from her Facebook videos where she expresses doubt about the Las Vegas shooter acting alone or claimed that the Pentagon wasn't hit by a plane during the 9-11 attacks. You know what I lean on to shape my politics and my philosophy? What is it? What is it? Say it with me. Expert opinion and scientific consensus. These people represent the rejection of this, and they're winning seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. Do you see why I fail to take seriously the threat of radical leftists? Because our so-called radical leftists in the Democratic Party are a handful of minority women and an ancient man from Vermont that at their most radical, maybe they want to spend a few trillion more than we really, really have to over the next 50 years to keep the planet from roasting itself. The rest of this radical left people worry about has power only on Twitter. I tell you what, when somebody in a black hoodie and gas mask wins a congressional election on a campaign of Stalin and Mao did nothing wrong and liberals get the bullet too, will somebody let me know? Will somebody send me an email to 3RT at SwizzBold.com? Because that would certainly be a cause for alarm. That kind of authoritarian radical leftist, yeah, I want to keep that person out of politics. But until we get to that, until we get close to that, maybe we can cool it with wanting to run out the progressive and socialist wing of our out of our party. Maybe we can do that. Maybe we can hold off on that. Anyway, got lots of time to talk about the left versus the center versus the moderates and what to do with them. But I want to keep talking about the idea of this election as a, as a disappointment, just a little bit more because we did lose the house. That sucks. We've already lost seven seats confirmed. We might lose another three to five because guess what? We keep counting the votes even when they're not going in our direction, because you know what? That's how democracy works. By the way, by the way, good job to the deep state rigging this election. Thank you very much for taking the time to rig this election in like 10 separate U.S. states, but forgetting to rig the handful of representative and Senate races that would give us total control of the legislative branches too. Good job, deep state. Thanks for rigging Georgia, but forgetting to rig Florida so we could all go to bed at a decent time. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Deep State. 
that's some real five head 16th dimensional chess you're playing right there but still still we're going to have something like 226 seats to republicans 209 in the house it's a slim advantage and 2022 is going to be scary because historically the winner of the presidential elections party suffers the next election cycle so maybe we'll lose the house i don't know probably a little too soon to start worrying but maybe not Back to this deep state rigging, by the way, um, I'd like to note that the Republicans are definitely not contesting the House and Senate results, which have been overwhelmingly in their favor, even though they're on the same exact ballot that the presidential races are in a lot of the same states. It's almost like it's almost like all this rigging talk is bullshit. Anyway, don't get me wrong. It sucks that we lost a little bit of ground in the House. It really sucks that we didn't win the Senate, at least not yet, because guess what? This election hasn't been long and grueling enough. As fate would have it, it's still going on. Both Georgian senator positions are going to be up for grabs in special runoff elections here in January. If the Democrats win both of the races, the Senate will be tied 50-50. But guess who counts that tie-breaking vote? The new vice president, the current vice president-elect of the United States, Democrat Kamala Harris. If we win both of those races, we can still take back the Senate. So Georgia, get ready. All the eyes on the nation are on you. You are about to be flooded with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of campaign propaganda and bullshit. So buckle up, baby. If you live in Georgia and you're not registered to vote, and hey, probably stings a bit that you missed your chance to play a historic role in in Georgia's flip here in 2020. But it's not too late. You can make good on that mistake. You have until December 7th. Just just a just a couple weeks away to get registered. If you're already registered, you can start requesting your absentee mail in ballot right now. So get on it. Also, if you're thinking about moving to Georgia or you're a student in Georgia, you should know that there's no minimum residency requirement to vote in this election. As long as you have a physical residence in Georgia at the time of registration and at the time of the runoff election on January 5th, you can and you should vote. Because speaking of disappointment, let me tell you, a Biden presidency without a Senate majority is going to be a lot more of a disappointment than one that enjoys control of both the House and the Senate. And again, we can still make this happen. This is why all elections are important. Georgia's having two sudden death Senate races in January 2021. All of us are going to have another state and federal election for the Senate and the House in just two years. Most of us are probably going to have an election next year, too, for other state and local positions and ballot propositions. You got to pay attention to your local politics. Speaking of which... I was hoping we'd gain control of more state houses. We had a strong chance to flip the states of Texas, North Carolina, Iowa, Pennsylvania, Michigan. Had a chance to flip those all blue, but we get didn't get it done. Maybe, maybe we'll eke out a slight win in Arizona. I don't know, thanks to the vengeance of the ghost of John McCain. But the Republicans took New Hampshire. What this means is just as many states are going to have control of redistricting in 2020, which means they're going to get to gerrymander as much as they did in 2010, maybe even more because the Supreme Court has shown almost no interest in reining in the wild gerrymandering we're seeing in some of these Republican states. Take a look at Dan Crenshaw's district in Texas sometime. Please, please just gaze at its majesty. It's like Morpheus seeing for the first time those birthing fields in the movie The Matrix. You know, uh, you just have to stand back and, and admire the horrifying precision of it all. 
which means it's going to be a lot harder to win in those states. It is. And that sucks. But that's also just more indication that while the majority of America is sick of Trump, they're not in love with progressive policies and solutions. Not yet. Now, I think those policies and solutions make sense. And if people give them a fair chance, they'll come to appreciate them. And I see my job here is convincing you people listening to three right turns of this fact and to give you the tools and the resources that you need to help convince your friends and your family, your community to get you involved in your community and its politics. I think we're going to have success with that approach. Because if we don't find a way to appeal to more people with our plans and policies, we risk sacrificing any possible progress for status quo and stagnation, and things are going to get worse. If we don't fix the serious, long-standing, underlying concerns in our country, concerns about education, about our health care, concerns about our economy, about our system of justice, we're going to get another Trump. We absolutely will. Probably a worse version of Trump, a more disciplined, a more polished version Because while we won an important battle last week, for sure, the war for the soul of this country, it's far from over. If you found it persuasive when I covered the words of Umberto Eco uh, on Ur fascism, which we covered just a few weeks ago in Three Right Turns 26, you know that this mindset's not going to be defeated when Trump is. We've had multiple signs of fascism, multiple signs of authoritarianism in this country. It's driven by people's alienation. They're isolation, their hopelessness. If we can't start fixing these problems and getting people help, they're going to continue to radicalize. And I'm tired. I'm tired of hoping people radicalize in a direction favorable to change, but not so much that we end up with a violent revolution where they blow people's brains out, scientists and scholars and send dissonance to gulags. Not taking care of people is a very high stakes game. And I've tried to tell anyone to listen to that. Now, As far as Trump goes, Trump in defeat. We'll be lucky if the executive branch is strong enough to keep Trump from dismantling it and stripping the White House down for parts. We're we're just we just are. We'll be lucky. We'll be lucky if Don Jr. and Eric aren't in there right now pulling the copper pipes and the wiring out. We'll be lucky if they're not filming Russian piss porn from the Lincoln bedroom from here until the inauguration of Joe Biden, which as of this Wednesday the day of the release of this podcast is still about 70 days away. Good God. How long does it take to move furniture in this 21st century? It's bad enough. Their elections last for two years. We have to suffer through three more months of lame duck Trump. Is this something we can maybe look at changing or is this some more of this unchangeable wisdom from the founding fathers that we just can't ever touch? All right. Enough of this disappointment stuff. Because regardless of what Trump does or say in the way out, regardless of the pipes he strips, the piss porn he makes, guess what? We won this election. And you remember how we all had to hear about how bigly Trump won the 2016 election? Well, now it's bizarro world time. Trump won by 306 electoral votes because he eroded the Democrats' Midwestern wall and won key battleground states by just a few tens of thousands of votes. This year, Biden won 2020 by rebuilding that wall, with Trump losing by a few thousand votes in states that were formerly Republican strongholds like Arizona and Georgia. Now, is it possible that Trump's constant denigration of Arizona's own John McCain 
the original Maverick Republican, the war hero, the loyal Republican? Is it possible his demeaning of this man pissed off Arizonans enough to tell Trump you're fired? Well, it's it's quite possible. Is it possible that people in Georgia, particularly black people, were upset at the treatment of their native civil rights hero, John Lewis, the treatment that he got in his final days? Maybe they were pissed that Trump snubbed his funeral, that Trump panned Obama's brilliant eulogy of the man and his legacy. Called it terrible. I think it's it's quite possible. Noted Trump lackey. Kellyanne Conway tweeted on November 28, 2016, 306, landslide, blowout, historic. Well, we just matched it. Not only that, we did it while winning the popular vote by over 5 million votes. And that number is going to continue to climb over the next few months as populous states like California and New York continue to count all of their votes. And it's just such it's such a bizarro result. It had all the closeness in the drama of 2016, except for starting that night confident and slowly having that dawning horror of what was happening creep in. We started the night in horror watching Florida and Ohio decisively go for Trump. You know, Ohio going for Trump uh, was particularly painful for me. It's my home state now. I really hoped that we'd flip Ohio blue, but we have we have so much work to do here in the Buckeye State. But those of us that might have hoped for like a fun and stress-free election night, and you know, I was up for five hours watching it with people live. I was hoping for that myself. For those of us hoping for this early night with the early call for blue Florida and North Carolina and Ohio and gosh, maybe even Texas, maybe even Texas will flip. Well, we didn't get that. What we got was the exact opposite. Things looked grim, but as widely predicted as the night wore on and states started counting their mail-in ballots, things kept getting better and better kept looking better and better could the minnesota michigan wisconsin wall hold could we hold arizona and new mexico my god can we actually take pennsylvania and georgia and we did it we did it by counting all the votes but it was crazy i myself said in the last three i turn i said look Don't expect a result on election night because the Republicans have deliberately engineered this scenario and fought with lawsuits against ridiculous things like making sure some states count absentee ballots after all the in-person ballots are going to be counted, needlessly delaying it. And this would virtually guarantee that Trump would have an early and decisive looking victory on election day, which would then be steadily eroded with absentee ballots as they were counted. We knew this would happen. I knew this would happen. But they still, still almost roped me in with the horror of Florida and that that goddamn New York Times needle. Damn, that was that was the that was the event of the night when I closed the the night stream around midnight. uh, And and just as I was shutting it down, people said, look at the Georgia needle. And I looked and there it flipped from impossibility of Georgia uh, of of Joe Biden to win to likely Joe Biden win. That goddamn needle. I'll never trust it again. We had we had Trump and his idiot sons all the next day saying, how can we be losing the election by these margins? We were up so much and these absentee ballots, they keep coming. They're two to one, three to one, four to one against us. How could this happen? Well, I wonder you spent the whole summer shitting on absentee ballots and telling your voters to show up on Election Day in the middle of a pandemic. And our side spent the whole summer getting people registered, educated about absentee ballots, sending them in hand delivering them, not trusting U.S. Postal Service, and you wonder that they break for us? Give me a break. 
In fact, there was a giant blue wave. It was a huge wave. 161 million people have voted in this election. That's a 67% turnout rate. That's the highest it's been since the year 1900. Currently, Joe Biden has almost 76 million people voting for him. That's more than any presidential ticket in the history of these United States. But the other fact is there was also a red wave, a smaller one, but it was still pretty huge. The Republican turnout was impressive and it really came through in the down ballots, which is why we struggled some in the House, the Senate and the state legislatures. But we can also never forget when we're deciding about hope or or pessimism that this election was dominated by dirty tricks. We're going to spend years untangling the mess of foreign money and social media influence on this election. We know what happened in 2016 and the Trump administration did nothing to stop it. The Republican controlled Senate did nothing to stop it. So I'm sure that continued and probably broke against us. The Republicans gutted the Voting Rights Act, then closed thousands of polling centers across the country. We saw the crazy long line some of us Americans had to stand in just to cast their ballots, just to cast their votes, spending eight to ten hours in the blazing sun or the pouring rain. It was a shameful display. And it's entirely the fault of Republicans. They improperly purged voter rolls. They attacked the legitimacy of mail-in voting. They tried to throw out hundreds of thousands of ballots for spurious reasons before the election even began. They sabotaged the Postal Service, leading to multiple days delay in the delivery of mail in some crucial locations. And we know how that mail-in vote broke for us Democrats, right? How many votes did that cost us nationwide? They gerrymandered the hell out of their districts, and yet still, still our voters turned out in record numbers and overcame all of these barriers to make their voices heard and their votes counted. Thank God Trump, by the way, telegraphed his decision to sabotage the election and fraudulently claim victory. I wonder what would have happened if he had just kept mum on all this and just popped it out on the night of the election. As it was... It all felt very performative, right? We knew it was coming. So when it did, it wasn't shocking. It it felt like bad theater. The press is like, we're going to go now to President Trump where we expect him to do that thing we told you he's going to do. And then they cut to him and he did it. He announced the election as illegitimate. He claimed himself as the winner. He did the coup. And then the president, the vice president, rather, the vice president of the United States, Mike Pence, stepped up to the podium and he walked it all back. Did you guys see that? I stayed up past three o'clock in the morning on election night, and it was so worth it to see Pence call off the coup in real time. It was hilarious. And then they cut back to the media and they're like, well, he did the thing. We knew he's going to do it. And additionally, he's full of shit. And then that was that. It was just the perfect storm of like 2000 and 2016 elections, except bizarro version. High stakes legal challenges, but they all rapidly fizzled. High drama, sick in your stomach feeling on election night, but we ended up winning after all the votes were counted. You know, those high stakes legal games that uh, Bush v. Gore played back in 2000. That's a that's a hard game to play. And that's when you got the dark lord of the Sith, Carl Rove with 500 votes in play in a Republican-controlled state to work with. When you got 10 or 20 or 50, 60,000 votes you got to make up in five states, I don't think even old Carl could pull that one off. And Rudy Giuliani, you are no Carl Rove. And as the week wore on, it became parody. 
Trump's campaign died in front of the Four Seasons Lawn and Garden Company, wedged right between a crematorium on one side and an adult bookstore. Can, can you imagine this? Can you imagine if you wrote that for TV or for a movie? It's it's something out of Veep. By the way, let me check in with you right now. Are are you feeling disappointed? Does any of this sound disappointing to you? I I don't feel disappointed. H- how did that? How did that Four Seasons shit happen? By the way. They've tried to book the prestigious Four Seasons Hotel and and they were full. They thought they booked Four Seasons but didn't check the right address. They announced it was the Four Seasons and they couldn't book it. So rather than back down and look stupid, they're like, oh, no, we can't do that. Oh, I know. Let's show up at the place right next to the dildo shop. (laughs) This is the Trump organization in a nutshell. Disorganized, a mess. This is the way they've governed our nation for the past four years. Just shooting from the hip, careening from one disaster to another, bullshitting their way out of it. And now they finally got to a place where they can't just make an empty gesture to a table full of blank papers. They can't hand 60 Minutes a hardbound copy of Lorem Ipsum. The courts weren't going to save them. The Republican establishment washed their hands of them. The emperor finally, finally had no clothes. And we could all see him. I'll see his naked ass up there. Speaking of disappointment, which group would you rather be associated with? The spontaneous, joyful celebration that spanned literally the entire globe when Joe Biden was announced as the winner? Did you see the supercuts of the celebrations all over the United States and the world? It was exactly like the special edition end of Return of the Jedi. The evil empire, it's dead, baby. Had fireworks going off, bells ringing, celebrating throngs of citizens everywhere. All you were missing was Ewoks playing xylophones on the empty helmets of stormtroopers. And it would have been the exact spitting image. Good music, people hanging out in the streets, not full of rage and anger that we've seen in the recent months, but in delight and relief. All kinds of people, happy, dancing, enjoy the celebration. Would you rather be a part of that group? Or would you rather be in the Alex Jones group that he led down in Arizona, you know, pulling up in a in a Humvee, jumping out, screaming threats and insults into a, a bullhorn? Or, or how about the did you see this video of these idiots awkwardly jamming out to rage against a machine wearing thin blue lines, flags as capes? Or would you rather be in the group with Don Jr., nervous and sweaty and asking rhetorical questions about the legitimacy of our elections to tepid crowds that were being ignored in favor of, you know, the joyous Ewok celebration of the downfall of the empire? I mean, I know which group I'd like to be associated with. And sure, some people with guns showed up, some. And then maybe, maybe that's going to get worse in the next few weeks. But I think it's going to fizzle. I think it's already fizzled because everybody wants to boss up and be militia until it's time to do it, until it's time to go out there and murder your fellow citizens. Now, times like that, you remember your job, you remember your home, your kids, your wife, and you ask, is this worth it? Am I going to do this for him, for Trump, for this guy? It's just, it's, I saw so many wild things. I, I tuned into stream after stream of what are essentially communist and socialists just kind of hanging out on like Twitch and YouTube. And they're just going out of their way to try to avoid openly gushing about Joe Biden. And look, guys, guys, it's okay. It's okay 
to say that you find an old man who seems like a decent guy likable after we've all gone through this shit with Trump. A man who can smile genuinely and tell a few jokes and look cool eating ice cream. It's okay. It's okay. We can oppose his politics when they're bad. And we can bitch about his cabinet choices if he stocks them with, oh, Jesus Christ. Is he really floating the person who headed up Quibi? Is Joe, B- Meg Whitman, we're going to give Meg Whitman a cabinet seat? Really? There's no other woman in America we can pick from that didn't just this year flush the worst streaming service idea in the world down the toilet? Whitman, who decided it was a good idea to cease and desist the only podcast was giving Quibi positive coverage because they incorporated their branding in the show's logo? Really? We got to go with Meg Whitman, huh? Oh, by the way, Republican Meg Whitman. See? See, it's possible. Yeah, yeah, I think Joe's cool, but he's going to do stupid shit. Maybe more often than not. And we're going to be here to point that out, to explain why what he's doing is wrong. Persuade people to our side. Move people further left. And that's better than what we had with Trump, comrades. It's okay to be happy about. I'm not saying that Biden's perfect or his presidency is going to solve all of our problems. What I'm saying is that in Trump's world, we had no hope of solving any of the pressing issues of our day. The environment was not conducive to progress. The Trump soil Rocky and barren Joe Biden's administration, not my ideal one. You know this if you've listened to all these podcasts, but we can get root started in that Biden soil. We can shape this environment for more rapid growth if we play our cards right. Over with Trump, all we could do is try and politically survive. We didn't really have a good hand. We didn't have much in the way of cards to play. And I'm pretty excited about that. By the way, Here are some more specific small victories we won on election night across the nation that you might not have heard about otherwise. Oregon, those those maniacs, home of the nightly Proud Boy versus Antifa street fights, home of Portlandia, those absolute lads decriminalized everything, all the drugs. You will not be arrested for simple possession of any narcotic any plant or mushroom in Oregon. That's right. All of Oregon got the hamster dam treatment right out of season four of the wire. Bunny Colvin is running Oregon now, and it's huge. This is such a huge experiment for the laboratory of democracy. And do you know what I predict is going to happen? I predict violent crime is going to be lower in Oregon than it's ever been before. So is the prison population. So the rate of felony convictions and the rate of disease transmission. Less people are going to be arrested. More people are going to get treatment. People are going to start trusting their local cops just a little bit more. Cops are going to have to relearn how to do basic fucking police work. That's what I think. And, you know, we'll see. And if it goes as I hope, hell, we might just be a decade away from ending drug prohibition. This prohibition that's eroded so many of our institutions and our public trust and our rights as citizens. I can suddenly see it happening in my lifetime. I can't believe it. On that same vein, Montana, South Dakota, Arizona, and New Jersey all legalized marijuana. Alameda County in California passed a sales tax to fund their homelessness services. Austin, Texas passed a property tax increase to fund the public rail transit. Seattle passed a sales tax for the same purpose. Proposition 208 in Arizona passed, raising taxes above $250,000 for education. Proposition 118 in Colorado passed 12 weeks of paid family leave, moms and dads, via a payroll tax. Proposition 26214 in Portland 
passed universal pre-K with a tax on people making over $165,000 a year. Measure 68 in Cleveland, Ohio passed, giving property tax increases for public schools. In Cincinnati, my hometown, I'm pretty sure all the tax levies uh, passed, including some badly needed emergency funding for the Cincinnati public school districts. These are all important wins, things that we've accomplished at our local level. Arguably more important than things that we're going to do in the federal level. Arguably have a much bigger impact on our individual lives. So, final verdict on the myth that the result of the 2020 election was a disappointment. I'm going to have to call this one myth busted. Y'all have seen Mythbusters, right? You've got the main myth. That was our main myth. Now we got the B team in here. We're going to do a couple mini myths. Next myth, Joe Biden stole the 2020 election. Well, unfortunately for Trump supporters, there's very little evidence for any kind of widespread voter fraud, especially widespread. Sure, you're always going to be able to find some voter fraud. So far, the evidence the Trump team has presented to the media, not to the court of law, and I'm, I'm recording this uh, late on Monday night, is individual accounts of vote watchers complaining about not being able to be close enough to the counting process and not be able to film and take pictures of same. There were a few anecdotal pieces of evidence that a dead voter actually voted, which that shouldn't be possible. That's bad. I've seen The Walking Dead. That's that's not anything you want to mess with. Any evidence of wrongdoing should be taken seriously. It should be investigated and that wrongdoing punished. But the evidence that they're showing off thus far are like a handful of voting records with an obituary for a name that matches the person on the ballot. That's not actual evidence. As far as filming and observers go, I mean, I don't want these people filming people's addresses and names and signatures and voting records and leaking that on social media. That's just not going to happen. It shouldn't. But these observers, they're just observing an already bipartisan group selected uh, by their state apparatus to count the votes. They don't get ballot by ballot approval powers. Look, like I've said many times, I used to be a Republican. I know all about the Democratic Party's history of dirty tricks and their somewhat checkered history of political machinery. You can go back to the days of Daly running Chicago in the 60s and the 70s. The story, bring out your dead Kennedy elections where supposedly poll workers went to the, the, the city's cemeteries and they read off the names of dead people from gravestones and voted with those names multiple times. Then, you know... In the days where the might of the mafia stood behind labor unions and ran them like a racket, the days of hand counting and punch card tabulation. Yeah, probably lots of corruption and shit. You can take this stuff all the way back to the days of Tammany Hall and Boss Tweed and the gangs in New York if you really want to, because it was all corrupt as hell. But even with the most recent allegations of severe widespread Democratic electoral wrongdoing, they're more than 50 years in the past. A lot's happened since then. I mean, we've talked a lot about how the Republicans and Democrats have kind of switched places. What's the evidence that Democrats are still doing this shit? Everybody's got cell phone cameras now, 24-7 surveillance. A lot of the election count centers had this stuff in the place from the beginning. I, I'm not seeing it. It's like Bigfoot, man. Everybody had blurry pictures of Bigfoot until cell phones came along. Now where the hell is the big guy? How the hell would someone drop off 100,000, 10,000, whatever many votes, big box of votes out of nowhere? How does that happen? Where's the evidence? The conservatives doing their poll watching were so hyper on alert that they stopped several cameramen working with the media from entering areas with their camera equipment. Had to open up and see, yes, actually, this is a fucking Nikon. 
they short term ruined the life of a poll worker working in Georgia by leaking film of him throwing away a sheet of paper from a counting table. The sheet of paper turned out to be an instructional sheet that was improperly returned with the ballot. But that didn't stop him from having his information, including his car's license plate number and his home address from being leaked. And he's been in hiding this week as a result. We want to let these people have cell phones and be taking pictures willy nilly. These people that lie and obfuscate and make shit up. Where's the evidence? Where is the hard evidence? And also, while we're talking about dirty tricks and hypocrisy, what's with trying to stop the count in Pennsylvania and Georgia, where it looked like Trump's ahead but losing ground fast, but in Arizona and Nevada, whoa, I'm down there but catching. Keep keep, keep counting those boys. Stop counting these votes. Keep counting that. But what the hell? What the hell? How is this fooling anybody? Besides, the president said he's going to be disputing the results of any election that showed that he wasn't going to win, going back to 2015. And he did dispute the results of an election that he won. He made baseless claims that Hillary Clinton's 3 million popular vote win was fraudulent and at the hands of illegal aliens. He started a commission in 2017 with the sole purpose of investigating what he claimed was the widespread fraud of the 2016 election. His commission disbanded a year later with no evidence of voter fraud to report. Again, what's the story here? The deep state rigged the election in 2020, but forgot to in 2016. They rigged it for Biden, but forgot to secure the House and the Senate for him. Come on. Come on. We're getting in QAnon territory here. Nobody's buying this. And he's not winning the court cases either because there's not a case to be made. Maybe there'll be, again, individual cases of voter fraud, and that should be investigated and punished. But we're not seeing at the level needed to overturn this present election result. We're just not. Final verdict, myth busted. Next myth, and it's going to be a controversial one, so buckle up. Polling, modeling, 538 is dead. Nate Silver is over. Okay, at least with this myth, there's some kind of there there. Okay, some of the polling was jacked up. Florida in particular seemed to be way off. Biden was favored to win by three percent, I think, in that uh, that uh, that state. And he lost by four points, five points. That's more than twice the margin for error. But it's important to note that polls can be off, but we can still trust in data and statistical analysis. You know, I was hearing takes on election night and this last weekend. I just couldn't believe people acting like polls don't matter at all. The statistical analysis is meaningless. I think maybe we should give Nate Silver and 538 a break. All he is doing is running poll numbers into a model and telling us probabilities that happen within that model. By the way, this exact result that looks like we're staring at right now, one where we get 300-ish electoral votes and five-plus million popular vote advantage, it's pretty much right in the middle of that statistical model probability that old Nate Silver built. So, yeah, you heard me. 538 was right again, as right as any model can be. You want to tune them out? That's fine, but I'm sticking with Fixie the Fox. The model's not the real world. The model doesn't know everything. The model's susceptible to polling errors. And polling in the days of the internet and cell phones, it's getting harder, and it's getting harder. And demographics change. People change. Just because a certain people voted 3-1 to against Trump one year doesn't mean you're guaranteed to keep doing that. And more on that here in a minute. This New York Times needle that was so reviled last election, if you'll recall, it started off the night in 2016 with a 99% certainty that Hillary Clinton would win, only to slowly and inexorably move over to Trump's side as the night wore on. 
This year, the needle fucked up in Georgia, but it looks like it nailed Florida and probably North Carolina, too. Because a lot changed this year. Exit polls weren't as accurate as pollsters were used to because more Republicans went to the polls in person and many more Democrats mailed their ballots in. So those exit polls weren't as representative as they used to be. Perhaps we had a shy Trump voter effect in polls. It's hard to believe. Have you met a Trump supporter? They don't seem shy. But who knows? Maybe. All I know is that we can't give up on data and statistical analysis and any other foundations of the science of sociology. Because a lot of the arguments that we make that support the concepts that we hold dear, at least on this podcast, you know, data that supports the idea that institutional racism is alive and well, that we'd be better off taking care of our homeless and housing them and getting them off the streets rather than just letting them die, that income inequality is rampant and growing worse. They rely on a rejection of common sense and a embracing of statistical analysis of trends and massive amounts of data points to overcome people's prejudices and anecdotal data and all the other kind of just bullshit that goes into quote unquote conventional wisdom. And also polling and election models to the extent that they do work, which is again, the vast majority of the time help politicians shore up their weaknesses and find policy and messaging that wins them supports. These Republicans always bitch about polls. They spend millions of dollars on polls because they know they're effective. We want our candidates taking advantage of that kind of analysis because we want to win elections, right? We want to win political power so that we can influence policy and make progress, right? Else, why are we doing this? Do we just want to go out there with our gut in the 21st century when you got fucking computers to worry about this shit? Maybe the average citizen shouldn't be out here trying to be Nate Silver and Claire Malone droning on and on about how actually everything is a political risk and it costs political capital and no one should ever take a chance to do anything risky. You should just keep getting more and more political power and influence and never use it because then you might lose it. No, no, that's not what we want to do. Private citizens talking like Beltway pundits, probably not a good look. Maybe we shouldn't look too much at polls if we're trying to decide as private citizens Gee whiz, should I get involved in this election if it's a 1 in 10 chance at suicide? Or maybe I should wait until it's a 1 in 6 chance of not blowing my brains out. But polling and modeling, they're here to stay. They're going to have their ups and downs. But to ignore it is as bad in my mind as using it as an excuse to be overconfident and not show up on election day. Or to use it as an excuse to give in to apathy and despair and all that other doomer stuff. So final call again Myth plausible, I see where you're coming from, but ultimately, long-term, busted. Next myth, and this is a spicy one. Despite this being a historic election with democracy and civil rights for all on the line and at stake, we lost Democratic support from Latinos, from black men, from insert minority X. Whew. I tell you, this myth is often accompanied by confused white folks asking questions along the general lines of, what were they thinking? Don't they know Trump and his followers hate them? How can a black man vote for Trump? Why is someone from Venezuela voting for Trump? He puts their kids in cages. All right. All right. Let's calm down and take a few steps back. We, and when I say we, I mean white people. We have to stop talking like this. You remember when your mom or maybe your teacher or some other authority figure told you not to point fingers? Why? Because when you point a finger, most of the time there's going to be four fingers pointing back at you. 
Now, I don't know how people point. When I point, at most, there's three fingers pointing back at me. And I got this thumb, and he's either joining my index finger in the attack, or he's trying to both sides the thing by awkwardly pointing to the side. And it's a, it's a thumb. It's not even a finger in the first place. What's this four fingers pointing back at you stuff? But you know, there is some wisdom to be had there. Because whenever, as a white person, we point the finger at a minority group for any kind of imagined electoral failure, we have to realize there's only one demographic group in this country that consistently, reliably, doggedly gives Republicans and Donald Trump, in particular, the majority of our support. And that's white people. White people. 54% of white people supported Trump in 2016. Not only that... Trump managed to improve that number to 57% in 2020. What the fuck, white America? And the poorer, the more rural, the more left behind, the more likely a white person is to vote for Trump, even though his policies are diametrically opposed to their existence. You remember uh, towards the beginning of this podcast, we had that conversation about COVID, how in North Dakota, uh, they ended up electing a man who died of COVID even though they're afflicted by COVID the most out of any state in the country. Yeah, the places in this country that are sickest, they're experiencing some of the most deaths. They all love him. But sure, let's let's point fingers at black and Latino voters. Let's let's see where that gets us, huh? Because you point that finger and I guarantee you there's going to be a black, brown and yellow finger pointing right back and the thumb. Who knows what the thumb's going to do? probably going to jab you in your eye and you're going to deserve that thumb for pointing your finger in the first place. Now, I'm not saying this, fellow white people. (laughs) I'm not saying this to make you feel bad for pointing a finger and asking questions. Hell, I've wondered and asked many similar questions in the past. I'm just letting you know how other people feel about it. So you don't pull this shit with some uh, black lady that's organizing votes in her community and she tears your fucking face off, okay? Like Jesus said... Before you go and offer to pull the splinter from your brother's eyeball, maybe get that rafter that's shooting out of yours. Maybe get that situation sorted because you're going to see better. All right. But if you're asking these questions, if you really want to know, it's kind of complicated, but I can explain it. Why would a black person support Trump? Why would a Latino person support Trump? Well, let's talk about it. There's no stupid questions on three right turns. Let's get into it. By the way, don't take my word for it. There's there's tons of Latino and black Americans. They're out there on Twitter. They're posting all kinds of uh, opinions and stuff. You can read it for you. That's how I get this information. I listen to what black people and Latino people say, and then I tell it to white people and people love it. It's fucking amazing. But yeah, you, you can get this straight from the source. And, and uh, this isn't the only truth. There's other people that have other opinions. There's notable people taking exception to this uh, opinions. There's everything in between. But this is what I think I'm hearing from people. And I think I'm getting it right. But, you know, three right turns at swizzbold.com. It's there for you to tell me when I get it wrong. First off, we're talking about Latinos. You got to know that they all don't have the same shared lived experiences. That's true for any block of people, including us white people, you know. We've talked about this before. Uh, if you live in New York City, uh, what do you got in common with the coal miner from West Virginia? You know, if you live in Los Angeles, what do you got in common with a person, a white person that lives in a trailer park in Mississippi? Right. So there's all kinds of people out there. Latinos, no different. A Mexican-American that came here illegally is going to feel differently about America than a Mexican-American that came here legally. Right. 
That makes sense. The latter might feel like they made the effort to do things the right way. They paid their dues. They paid their taxes. They jumped through all the hoops. They did all the paperwork. They got their green card, got their citizenship, spent years, not God knows how much money to get this accomplished. And now someone wants to walk across the border and just get what they had to work years for, breaking all the rules. They don't see that as fair. Now, you take that same person. They have kids. Their kids have kids. These people are as American as apple pie now, three generations later. They got money, property, skin in the game. They got businesses, maybe businesses impacted by illegal immigration. Maybe you can start to understand that to ask them to have empathy and understanding and solidarity with people sneaking over the border, it's about as easy as asking the average white rancher in Texas or New Mexico to do the same thing. Yeah, you can do it. You got arguments on your side. They're there. But their experiences are going to be working against you. It's tough to argue against people's lived experiences. Then you've got Cuban-Americans. You know how in The Godfather 2, Michael Corleone is uh, all down in Cuba and he's looking into getting business down there. And they're all saying him and his criminal buddies, ah, we're making this place into a capitalist paradise. Money's going to flow in and out of this place. And no one's going to look too closely at what we're doing because the Cuban government's in on it. And we're just going to fill this country full of drugs and liquor and casinos. and We're going to fuck the natives. And they're all slapping their backs about how much money they're going to make off all of it. You know, they're just like kings of the world, rulers of the universe. But but then what happens? These these, these men in the, the green fatigues, they show up with, with jeeps and rifles and, and everything starts getting blown up and shot up. You, you remember those scenes, right? Well, those dudes in the fatigues, turns out they're guys like Fidel Castro and Che Guevara and they're the socialist revolution and they're going to kick out all those rich people fucking their country over at the point of a gun. And then they're going to take those Cubans who collaborated with those people. They're going to take their wealth and they're going to take their land. They're just going to take it. And they're going to set up an authoritarian socialist state where people have very little intellectual and political freedom. Goddamn, it was almost sounding cool till we got to that point, right? But anyway, those people are going to get kicked out. And where do they come? Mostly to America. Southern Florida. Miami, by and large. What do you think those people and their children and their grandchildren, what do you think their perspective on socialism is? To the extent that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris can be painted with some kind of broad, radical socialist brush, that seems like a scary thing to vote for, doesn't it? Now, I know at least some of my audience is probably bristling right now because to their minds, the people that got kicked out of Cuba, all bad people. I mean, they're making deals with gangsters and crooks, right? The pillage Cuba, capitalists, all of them, fuck them, right? Sure, sure. But, you know, there's a lot of students, professors, scientists, doctors, journalists, gay men and women all caught up in those post-revolutionary purges, too, right? I don't know that we should view all those people as evil, but they're all Cuban and they all had their homeland taken from them and they all probably hate socialism and they see this country taking them in, even saving them. And they feel like or they've been made to feel like that this country that helped them so much, that they love so much, that they feel uh, a real part of, they feel like that country is under attack. They're not going to have it. And if you're relying on razor thin margins and super majorities of minorities that you want to treat as some kind of monolithic block that you can ignore and never try to appeal to because, well, the other guys lay worse. Well, sometimes you're going to lose Florida and Texas when, man, it was really close. And gee whiz, you really were hoping for it. Another thing about Latinos 
there's a pretty big disparity between the lived experiences of people who descended from the Native Americans and those that descended from the lighter skinned European colonists, right? The latter have a much better chance of doing that magical trick thing that we talked about in Three Right Turns number six, the unbearable whiteness of being, that old cultural cloaking device of becoming white. Just like the Irish, the German, the Italian immigrants before them, there's a path for many of these Latinos to become white. Just be white. And after a few generations, they pretty much are. You've heard me talk a couple times in this podcast about Nick Fuentes, one of the most preeminent white nationalists today. Largest audience by far among white nationalists online. He's Hispanic. It's crazy stuff. But you know one of the fastest ways to become white in this country? Attack your fellow non-whites. Prove to the racist and the racist institution of this country that you are one of the quote-unquote good ones. Another thing about Latino and black folk is they tend to be culturally conservative. They are, in general, demographically speaking, more likely to be uncomfortable with topics having to do with homosexuality, abortion. They tend to be more religious. To the extent that the left is seen as pro-gay, pro-abortion, anti-religious, it's alienating. So we have to have better messaging than Trump bad to appeal to these people. We have to give them good reasons to vote for our politics and our policies beyond just them holding their nose and voting against a person who might theoretically want to do them more harm. We have to give them good reasons. And I'll tell you another thing. One of the reasons Trump gained ground across many minority groups is because the whole vote for me, what do you got to lose? That's a pretty effective argument. It is. When Trump says, look at these Democratic cities, they've ran things for 40, 50 years and have things gotten better or things gotten worse. That makes a lot of sense to people. There's a lot of truth to that. Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City and other of these so-called liberal fortresses have massive hypocrisies. They're full of liberal people who are willing to be performative about being conscious about racial issues and about the plight of homelessness in their communities. But you want to do real talk about police reform, talk about changing zoning to build more houses, talk about raising taxes, talk about ending long-standing property tax exemptions, talk about where we're going to put low-income government housing, talk about where we're going to put homeless shelters, and drug rehab facilities. You confront the average wealthy liberal with these down and dirty, nitty gritty parts of making the country better. Suddenly, they start talking pretty damn Republican. And that represents a betrayal to those affected by these policies. Every time we vote Democratic in big cities and then four years later, the homeless problem is worse. The justice systems are worse. The economic conditions have deteriorated, become more unfair. It's a betrayal. How many times can a person be betrayed before they stop showing up to vote? Or they take a chance and give their vote to the other side? Because what have they got to lose? I've talked on this podcast a few times before about the prisoner's dilemma. It's a thought experiment in game theory where you imagine there's two criminals caught by the police and they're brought in for investigation. If both of them stay silent, they get lighter sentences. Maybe they get off scot-free. If they both cooperate with the police and turn each other in, they both get lighter sentences, but not as light as staying shut, staying true to each other, having solidarity. But if one of them betrays the other and the other one doesn't, the one who gets betrayed gets the book thrown at them, and the one who did the betraying is guaranteed to get off scot-free. 
Now, you talk to any game theory analyst, and they'll tell you the same thing. The best way to play is to work with the other guy, stay true to each other, maintain that solidarity. But if the other guy betrays you, the rational choice in this decision is to betray the other side right back. Because if you never betray the other prisoner and repeat this game over and over again, let's say every four years for the last 50 or so, and every time you're betrayed, well, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different outcome. I don't think black folks are insane or stupid. I don't think Latinos are insane or stupid. It's a rational choice when you've been screwed over by the police in your community, when you've had your land and your wealth taken from you generation after generation, when the solutions given never seem to pan out for you. It's a rational decision to try out the other side or more likely just drop out altogether. Well, here's here's another way to frame this argument. How fucked are Democrats long term if they need to win five or 10 states by razor thin margins and the Republicans can completely do all that in by just dropping the obvious racism they've been doing in the Trump years? Like imagine Donald Trump policy spoken by a guy like Mitt Romney or imagine it spoken like someone like Barack Obama. You think it's a nightmare for Trump increasing the voting share among black men by 3%? What if that's 10%, 20%? And if the Democrats don't get their shit together, that's exactly what can happen. And it's completely understandable. It's a completely rational choice those folks will be making. What if we lose on climate change, on women's rights, on minority rights, on economic justice, just because Republicans get disciplined enough to stop dog whistling and the fog horning of the racist bullshit that had been up to this last decade. If we're counting on blacks and Latinos and other minorities to support us, if we're literally living and dying in elections and swing states because of them, if we're relying on their grassroots organizing and mobilizing, and we are, check with Georgia on that. Check the rate of black registration in that recent election. Look up Stacey Abrams. We are absolutely relying on them. We better have their backs in the fights to come. Or we are going to regret it. We are going to regret it. So maybe we as white folks can work on improving our side of the street. You know, let's point the fingers at ourselves and the thumb too. We deserve the thumb. See if we can knock that white support Republicans down to something. I don't know. Below 50%. Let's see if we can do that before we get huffy about only getting 87% of the black Americans vote instead of 92%. I think that's going to serve us better in the long term. And let's call this myth for what it is. Busted. Well, you know what? I actually had six other topics I intended to bust, but it seems like I've run out of time for this week. What I'm going to do is I'm going to save them into a separate document and maybe we can revisit them through the rest of 2020 just to see how the various election myths shake out because there's going to be a bunch of them. There's going to be some doozies. This is a historic election for for many, many reasons. We're going to be talking about it for years to come. There's so many lessons we can learn it can't all be done in one podcast. In fact, we're not even done counting the votes. It's probably premature to do this. Hell, by the time this hits Wednesday, we might be in a civil war. I don't know, but it doesn't look like it. And this isn't a disappointment. And I'm pretty happy now. So let's move on to the mailbag. 3RT at SwizzBold.com is how you send in feedback. You can also always discuss these podcasts and others on the SwizzBold network on our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash SwizzBold. April says... As a Californian and in San Franciscan at that, I don't understand how a state can go for Trump by huge margins and also have a senator like Sherrod Brown. 
There is, of course, the incumbent factor, as Brown has been senator for over 10 years, so he's likely to keep winning there. But from what I understand, he's genuinely beloved by the Ohio voters. I realize he's never been on the ballot at the same time as Trump, so this is all hypothetical. But are there really substantial parts of the electorate that would vote for both Brown and Trump at the same time? Are they just getting different people to the polls? The cognitive dissonance is really confusing to my brain. I know it happens. Hell, Elizabeth Warren likely can't be in the cabinet because of the liberal bastion Massachusetts has a Republican governor. So this isn't like a unique thing. But does it mean people aren't as party loyal as the popular wisdom would suggest? Does it just take the right person to make split ticket voting possible? Again, I've only lived in Los Angeles and San Francisco, so I am the coastal elite who doesn't understand the real Americans at the heartland. But I genuinely don't understand it as a real red blooded American. Please educate me. (laughs) Well, I'll try. Uh, It's a great question. To be honest, I missed a lot of uh, Mr. Brown's ascent in Ohio politics because I was a Hoosier just across the border when he was rising up through the House and when he dethroned Mike DeWine as senator. You know, DeWine's now governor of uh, Ohio. So so don't worry about him. He's doing fine. In fact, with all of his, uh, you know, recent uh, rhetoric of of, of being the covid master, as, 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 as least as far as Republican governors go, I wouldn't be surprised if he runs for president in 2024. But fuck Mike DeWine. Let's talk about Senator Brown. As you point out, uh, he is amongst the most liberal of U.S. senators. Um, and he's he's got a really big mouth when it comes to, like, gun control, which is kind of amazing. It doesn't get him uh, voted out. And it might it might have gun control becomes a big point of emphasis in the future. But he's he's also, I think, just an amazing kind of Ohio story. And he checks off a lot of boxes for people. You know, born and raised in Ohio. He's a Buckeye through and through. He was an Eagle Scout as a youth. Uh, Conservatives love that kind of shit. And it's an impressive accomplishment. He graduated from the Ohio State University, which Buckeyes, of course, love. He taught there for a few years as a professor before he started running for office. But he also sticks to his guns, the ones he's not controlling anyway, even on unpopular issues. And people respect him for that. I think he really made his bones as being one of the very few politicians back in the day that voted against the authorization for the Iraq war. I mean, that decision looks really good in hindsight, and it really gave him the moral authority he needed to bludgeon guys like the wine when he was debating them back in those uh, days of 2006, where, you know, public was kind of souring on these Gulf wars and Bush and the economy. And he took advantage of that. Despite the wine outspending them on it, that race, I looked it up two to one. Like the wine spent 15, Sherrod Brown spent less than 10. And he, he talks about things that are important to blue collar and rural types of the people. He's big on talking about the dignity of work, you know, and having economic uh, opportunity more so than like handouts. But I also think he's just a likable dude. Uh, he always looks to me like he's just rolled out of bed. He's got that rumpled suit, the kind of rumpled hair. He's kind of like that that younger Bernie Sanders vibe he gives off. Uh, unpretentious, unassuming, long record of being right for the right reasons, quotes from the Bible, but he's not preachy, has that authentic vibe. He doesn't feel like he's market tested. He's not loud and obnoxious. He doesn't rub people the wrong way, although he did get into a screaming match, I guess, uh, back in 2017 with Senator Orrin Hatch over the 2017 tax bill. But, you know, if you're screaming about a massive tax cut to the rich, well, that's that's not an altogether terrible thing to get in a shouting match about. But ultimately, I think, um, you know, it's a good look to have consistent principles and stick by them. It's a long, hard road to go through politics that way. But if you can pull it off and 
you're going to stand out and you're going to win people's respect and loyalty. And I think that's what's happening here. But as you also point out, incumbents win elections more often than not. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's something obscenely high. It's very hard to to defeat an incumbent president. In fact, I think Trump is only the fifth incumbent president to be defeated in the entire history of the United States. That's kind of crazy, right? So if you can get a chance to run against an unpopular struggling incumbent that's weak for whatever reason, you got a really good shot at holding that seat until you piss off a lot of people or you get caught up in whatever the wedge issue of the day is. And I think that's what Sherrod Brown's going to do until the day he gets pinched by a wedge issue. Maybe it's going to be gun control. Maybe it's going to be Biden trying to ban assault weapons. Maybe that's going to really sink him in the next election or until he runs for president, which I hope he doesn't because it's going to be hard as hell <laughs> for a Democrat to win a seat without that incumbent advantage, without that, uh, you know, Buckeye golden story of his. So I don't know if that helped you uh, understand uh, uh, the interior of the America's politics, April, but I do appreciate your email. And if you appreciate what we do here on Three Right Turns and the whole Swizzbold network, uh, I'd like to ask you to please consider giving us your support at patreon.com slash Swizzbold. That support entitles you to custom Reddit flair on our subreddit, access to the patron-only member content like our monthly live streams. By the way, there's one coming up tomorrow night. Thursday, November 12th at 8 p.m. Uh, you can sign up, get access to that and all. We're going on a year's worth. I think the next three right turns. I think this three right turns is my one year anniversary, actually. Happy anniversary to three right turns, everybody. I think next week's is going to be one weird trick. So there's a whole whole year's worth of content up there for you to enjoy at patreon.com slash We made it a year. Damn. Anyway, at this point, I'd like to specially thank our Fred level patrons for getting us over this year, Mark special. Thanks to Lisa Singleton, Jenny, Kira Grushow, Laura Luthi, James Taylor, Mark Hahn, Greg Rasp, Angela Morano, Arvin Rao, David Satterley, Brandon DeVito, George P. Burdell, Brian Rasmussen, Jordan Hoyt, Jared Harrelman. We couldn't do it without you guys. Appreciate you all. Again, thanks to everybody for listening. Don't forget about our Patreon live stream tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And of course, Cecily and I are going to be back next week for another episode of One Weird Trick. Until then, you know, just enjoy yourselves. And in, 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 enjoy the, the, the bask of our victory. Try not to gloat too hard about it. We're going to have to get back to some hard work real, real soon. But we won. Enjoy it. I'll see you next time. Yeah.